following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning, everyone. Let's turn to, can you guess, Luke 2. Let's go to Luke 2 this morning for our sermon. Welcome all those that are worshiping with us here, uh, some new faces and uh, also a lot of empty seats, but I also know that part of that is represented by that camera on the back wall too. Um, we miss and love you who are at home. Um, we realize what's going on and we miss you and desire for you to be back with us as soon as possible. As I look at that camera, I look at the strange scattering of the seats around here, I'm just reminded that we live in a broken world, in a fallen world, where sin still is showing itself. And we recognize that we need Christ our King to come back and change all and put all in subjection in a complete way, as he has done so, as he stands now, in the, uh, sits actually at the right hand of the Father. And for this we're thankful. So if you're at home, we miss you. We are praying for you. We love you. We need you to come back to be a part of our body. We understand. We pray both for the end of the pandemic and for you as you are not able to join with us today. We love you. Uh, let's go ahead and read Luke 2, 1 through 20, and uh, then we'll pray together. So uh, if you want to follow along with your Bibles, that's fine. Luke 2, 1 through 20, and then we'll pray. This is God's Word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Let's take a minute and pray together. Dear God, our glorious King, may all praise and glory and honor be to you. We humbly come, but boldly come to you in the name of Jesus, confessing our rebellion and weakness. We need you every hour, but Lord, 
right now as we sit under your word, we ask that you would work in us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work through the preaching of the word. This would not be mighty speaking by your servant, but rather, Lord, the Holy Spirit would apply these words to our hearts and cause us to understand who you are. Be with our brothers and sisters who cannot gather with us today. Sustain them and give them grace in this time of separation from the body of Christ. Lord, we, we ask that you'd watch over them. I mean, they need your grace. Thank you again for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And may we learn to submit to his care this morning. Give us grace to understand and apply your precious word that we would love and glorify you forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, Merry Christmas to everyone here. Glad you are together uh, on this day as we get ready for a celebration of our Lord's birth. Um, I hope that everyone has gotten at least most of their Christmas shopping done. I know, guys, you have a few more days, but not much else, all right? Uh, I also hope that you haven't gorged yourself. I know I saw some of those jabs. That was good. Um, so hope you haven't gorged yourself on, like, Christmas cookies and all the other stuff that goes around, uh, you know. And I hope that you've had your fill of those terrible holiday rom-coms and that you're ready to do a media fast after this time. It's a good time for a cleanse. You'll join me in January doing that. Um, but, man, what a, what a year we have been having. Right? If we, if we look back a year ago, we, we, we probably wouldn't have seen some of this stuff coming at all. I mean, the amount of social unrest that we're seeing, uh, the global pandemic, the coronavirus, uh, the 2020 election and all that that has turned out for us. I mean, it would probably be uh, pretty safe to say we're living, at least for us, in some pretty unique times. I mean, I'm tempted to think that uh, this is somewhat unprecedented, like we've never experienced in anything like this before. But even just a, a brief look at history, we recognize that other stuff has happened in similar ways to the people of God and to the world in general. But I will say this, there's nothing at all that has changed about man's essential problem. Nothing has changed. The, the essential problem isn't the pandemic. The essential problem isn't like global starvation or any of these things. The central problem for all of mankind is still their need to be saved, to be rescued from the wrath of God because of our own choosing and because of being born in Adam, we have sinned and separated ourselves from God. Man's essential problem is still the exact same. We need to be reconciled to God. And from the very beginning, from the time that God addressed the serpent, if you remember this about his deception, he promised us, when he told him that one day he would have a seed that would come from Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. We know this to be true. And then as, as Scripture kind of unfolds, we see more and more promises that promise us that there will be one who will save us from our sin. Someone who will restore the relationship and reign as king supreme. We heard it in the different readings this morning. All these promises that said one would come, that God would reign, and that he would be the one that he said that he would to save his people. But as we kind of think through the story of Scripture, we know right from the beginning that the Savior did not come to Adam and Eve. Uh, instead, the Lord provided Seth, a promised son in some way. He also didn't come, that this, the Savior didn't come when they were wallowing in rebellion, but rather the Lord sent Noah and the ark to save his people. And as we fast forward through a little more of history, we know that when Israel's in bondage in Egypt, the Savior didn't come, but yet he sent Moses to deliver. And then we watch as the people of Israel go into the promised land. 
and we're thinking maybe he'll provide a king that will take care and actually be able to rule. And he doesn't do the deliverer, the savior, but he sends eventually the kingship of David to rule well. And he promises to his lineage that he will bring one who will rule forever. And as we see this, we realize that God has provided everything his people needed, and yet the essential problem hasn't been solved yet. They're all promises at this point. They're all shadows of what will, to come, will come. And yet we don't have the decisive work of God to make all things right. All these gifts were good, but none of them were permanent. They weren't the solution that they needed to solve the problem with sin against God. We know that the blood of bulls and rams, and they couldn't take care of our main sin problem. God needed to crush the head of the serpent still. God needed to deliver his people from their wickedness and provide them with forgiveness, truly. God needed to provide a king who would rule and reign forever. And as we think about this, after millennia of promises and waiting, and some of these things actually playing out in shadows of what was to come, God's people feel like they are in the dark, waiting quietly. God hadn't done these things, and yet it was so dark. Enter Luke 2, 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. There we are here. We're starting here in the same place. We are starting in the darkness. In a sense, maybe on a hillside somewhere out in the wilderness where these shepherds are watching their sheep, they're guarding them. It is dark. We start in a field in a region in Bethlehem in physical darkness. I mean, if you think about the situation, again, God's people and the world for that matter were weary and finding themselves in this darkness. God hasn't spoken through the prophets for over 400 years. No revelation, no light has shone on his people. It doesn't seem like these promises are ever going to come true. It seems very dark. And Luke tells us that these shepherds are guarding their sheep. They're probably taking shifts. Probably some of them are just like uh, watching some of the sheep and some maybe are sleeping, and that's okay. They're waiting for the sun to rise until the next day comes. The picture of the shepherds in darkness, though, is not just a clever little tidbit of the story. It's actually a picture, a fitting picture for us to understand Christ's birth narrative. It's important for us, actually. They're probably taking shifts, again, like I said. They are making sure that the animals, that, remember, these animals are someone's investment. They probably don't want them to get lost. They don't want them to get eaten by predators, and they certainly don't want any thief to come along and take a few from them. So this is an important time for the shepherds. It may seem like a strange one for them to doze off, but they're not bunking down next to their favorite sheep and just waiting for the next day. These shepherds are watching, guarding, and making sure that no one's making off the sheep in the middle of the night. They're diligently taking care to make sure this doesn't happen. And the detail in the story is, in the midst of this, they are watching, and it is the darkest part of the 24-hour day. Quiet, dark, they can hardly see the sheep that they do have, waiting and watching. My point here is that they aren't sleeping, they aren't hallucinating, they aren't dreaming, they are watching carefully that no thief or predator would come and steal these sheep. It's night. It is dark. And it's in the setting here that we come to verse 9. Listen, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, I have no idea what this would have actually looked like, but I can tell you the way that they describe it, and Luke says this here, is making that this is like some sort of brightness. The only way that he can, and we could probably describe it, is with light. 
we don't know that it's actually light because he says it's something different. Notice what he says. This is the glory of the Lord that was shining around them. Something that we can't describe other than some sort of immense brightness. Again, it's not just light, but something that emanates from the glory of God. And in the dark night watch, the darkest time of this day, of these 24 hours, where again, there's no hope of illumination whatsoever except from a torch, maybe a campfire, we have the brightness of God's glory coming in around them. That's very reminiscent of what uh, we just read, right, in Isaiah 9 too. Can we just read this? It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light shone. In this deep darkness of the age, in the time where God had been silent for 400 years, an angel of the Lord comes in glorious light to shine the real light on God's people. It's a beautiful little picture here. And this wasn't some casual appearance by someone that they weren't sure, is this an angel? We're not really sure who this is. No, no, no. This, is this guy just some sort of a bright visitor around, wandering around the wilderness in Judea? No, this is, they understand what's going on here. Listen to verse 9 again. It strikes great fear into them. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. This appearing, in a sense, is really otherworldly. They don't know exactly what to do with this. They don't understand what's happening, and they are scared. They are freaking out. It is what uh, we would maybe call, if we were to experience something like this, we might say, I don't know what it was, maybe some sort of alien visitation. I mean, it was bright. It was crazy. I can't describe the feeling that I had, and it was too wonderful for them, and they didn't know how to respond, except for the fact that they were filled with great fear. Now, you know, I do Greek translation to try to understand what's going on. This is my version of it, very uh, literal, and they were terrified with mega fear. This fear is controlling and consuming. They don't know what to do about it. Again, an otherworldly experience. experience. They're terrified. But the good news is, the angels know this. Because look what they do. Verse 10, the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now, I'm guessing these guys, when they experience this, they're they're thinking maybe they're going to die, or they're going to be abducted, or something is going to happen. They're terrified. And instead of a message of terror, what do they get but a message of great joy? Notice how Luke does that here. He's actually going to put two things right next to each other, right? He says they were afraid or they're full of great fear. And then the message that the angels deliver is one of great joy. Great fear, now great joy. What in the world could they have to say that would change those shepherds from being so scared that now they were equally joyful? That's what we have to ask here. What's going on? I mean, as powerful and as capable and as mighty and as bright as these angels are, this story isn't about an angelic experience. That's not what this story is about. That's not what we're supposed to take away from here. Because guess what? That's not what the shepherds do. That's not what they're so enamored with. What's going on here is the message that they bring. This is what's important. He says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, all the people. Did you notice what word he used? Good news. You guys know this word. This is the word for gospel. This is actually the verb he would preach good news. This is kind of a, a more of a little translation. The angel is saying, I preach the gospel of great joy that will be to all the people. 
So first of all, right away we notice here that they are declaring a message of good news, of salvation. It is God finally speaking. And the angels have given these shepherds the gospel, the good news. It's really cool. But then the second thing is that it's not only for the shepherds. Look what he says here. This message, message is meant to be given to all the people. Now, he's talking about all of Israel. Now, we might think that he's making some sort of a worldwide call here. That's not the word he uses here. He says all the people, not all the nations. That would be a little bit different if he did that. His point here is that he's bringing these, this word to the people of Israel who have so long awaited this. Think about for a moment the messengers that he is choosing to deliver this to. He sends angels to a group of shepherds. They are probably a despised, lowly class. Um, they spend all night out in the fields. They're not ones that are super trustworthy necessarily. They are, by most of society, thought as those that are despised and lowly. And these are the ones that the angels go to, to give this message. And this is so, again, we want to understand then not only why he would do this, but what's the message he's going to deliver to them and why it's so important as he does so. We learn even by the form that he's coming to some of these that are lowly. But the message, what's all important here, what's the cause for such joy? Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. If I can stop mid-sermon, mid this is the message of Christmas. This is what it's all about. This is the message for us today. Why do we gather week after week to be together? To proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, to worship our Savior together as His body. This is the heart of why Christians can have joy at Christmas, whether they have lights on their house or Christmas trees or anything. The joy is not found in these silly things. They're fun and wonderful, but the joy of Christmas time is in the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. In King David's city, in Bethlehem, where if you remember, Micah, the prophet, actually said a ruler will come from Bethlehem, he is saying that a Savior was born. And it wasn't just any Savior. It wasn't just any deliverer or judge. It wasn't just a prophet. It wasn't just a priest. It wasn't just a king. We've seen all those, right? We talked about it from the beginning. We've seen those come throughout the Old Testament. He says something different here. This is not just any old judge or savior. This is Christ the Lord. By this little designation, he's different than everybody else. Christ, in other words, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who would do what God called him to do. We see he is making dozens of connections in the Old Testament to this person, the anointed one, the Messiah. But by saying Lord, he's making another claim even on top of that. This is the word for covenant Lord the one that would be their God. In other words, this isn't just a political or military leader or savior to come rescue them from some sort of oppression. This is a savior of all things of his people. This is the one who will save his people from their sin. This is the one who will save them from the wrath of God, the only one that could actually do it. We've heard this before, right? If you think about Matthew's account of the nativity, right, he actually tells us this. He says, if you remember, Matthew says that when the angel Lord told Joseph and Mary they'd bear a son, he says you should call his name what? Jesus. Why? And then he tells us, Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins, not from Rome, not from being poor. He says he'd save the people from their sins. 
Now, this has always been the basic human problem, like we said. There's absolutely no way that you and I or anyone else in the world could ever write themselves with God by themselves. We must be rescued. We had to have God himself do this work to us. And that's what we are seeing. He will not clear the guilty. What hope is there for the human race as we stand before a righteous, holy creator who's made us and we rebelled against him? What hope is there? It's the hope of Christmas. It's the hope that the Savior has come. It's the hope that God has acted in real time and space. It's not just an analogy or a metaphor. Jesus Christ really came. And he told these, these messengers, these shepherds, by words from angels that this was happening today in the city of Bethlehem. This is good news for us, that Jesus Christ was given for us as a sacrifice. Jesus has taken all the sin from his people upon himself. Instead, he has given us his righteousness. Jesus, the word made flesh, has acted to save his people. And those of us who trust him alone as his savior and king have his righteousness. We will be spared by God's grace alone. We will be spared the wrath of God that is against us. This is the beautiful gospel message that the angels proclaimed to the shepherds so long ago. Now, we realize that they didn't know all the different details of this. I mean, still a lot of that was still to come. They, this was still a baby. They understood only what they could, but they knew that this angel was talking about the long-awaited Savior and that this person had finally been born. Not only did the shepherds get this message, though, they also get a sign. Now, when, when you and I think this, they, like, we, we would wonder, what are he talking about? Well, it's a sign that validates what the message was. Now, in this instance, it actually happens to be that they tell him about the exact person. But this point, he was trying to say, hey, this will be a sign to you. So you can say, what I'm saying to you is true. So go see, observe, the, sp- the Savior I've spoken about is here. Look at verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, often we think of signs, and this is right to think of this way, we think of signs and wonders, amazing, miraculous, extraordinary things that show that the words that were spoken were true. That, that's certainly true. But it also works the other way. Sometimes we see this amazing truth that's actually validated by a sign that's very normal. We see this all throughout the Old Testament as well. And that's what's going on here. The message that is being proclaimed is miraculous, is cosmic in a sense. It's enormous that the Savior of the world has come. It's something that's really unbelievable. But the sign is something very simple, humble, and lowly. I mean, think about this sign, right? It's a newborn baby, okay, wrapped up like it's supposed to be in swaddling cloths, okay? But then the strange thing, the part that's not kingly, the part that's not glorious, the part that's not the glory of God shining, listen to this, the strange thing is that this king this Savior, this Lord, would be found lying in a feeding trough, in a manger. Now, I know we all see pictures of what the first Christmas would have been like. You know, we have this idea of what the nativity looked like, all quaint, and, you know, it's kind of got that white barn, shabby chic going on, and like, this is real cool and quaint. Remember what this is. It's where a gross, slobbery animal was eating and then probably regurgitated some of it. It's it's gross. This is not a great place to have a child. This is not a place that we would Instagram and tell our friends all about our birth experience. This is a gross, ugly, lowly place. Humble beginnings. It wasn't cool. 
Again, their newborn baby was being born in some kind of place that was meant for animals. The setting is a stark contrast to the message of this exalted one, the one who is the anointed, the one who is the Lord. The setting is a stark contrast for us to understand. Compared to all that the angels have already said and compared to the high praise that we're about to hear in a minute here, this sign is impressively insignificant, impressively humble, impressively lowly. I remember in college, we were, we were doing a Bible study with some unbelievers um, at another local college, and we were just doing through the Gospels. And I remember we came across the, the birth narrative. Um, I think we were going through Matthew, and we just, just talked widely about the birth narrative. And I remember one of the, one of the guys who's an unbeliever, he just said, you know, this makes sense. Like the idea here of a great leader kind of telling their birth story, their origin stories of very humble beginnings. Like they're very relatable. Uh, very likable. They're very normal people, and as they rise into power, you can kind of like feel, okay, yeah, that makes sense. This person is very likable and normal, and we can kind of get behind him and respect this kind of a person who has these humble beginnings. And I've thought about that several times. Like, that, that does make sense. However, it doesn't make sense of the rest of this passage, of the experience that we see here. As if Jesus' birth narrative, his manger bed was some kind of virtue signal to everyone else to follow the one who had humble beginnings. Respect for this guy. But that doesn't take the rest of the narrative seriously. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. No great leader, no politician or businessman or superstar ever had a humble beginning like this one that was accompanied by such an unhumble announcement of their lordship. That's because no one's lord. He alone is God and king. This is reserved for him alone. And these angels tell the truth about who this baby, who this savior is. Uh, you know, no one is, has had an introduction quite like this. And let's just be clear what's going on here. I've seen a lot of Christmas cards and a lot of songs, but I just want to maybe burst a bubble. I don't think this is a angelic, an angelic choir. I don't think that they're all have eyes closed singing no, the first Noel. This is why I say that. Luke says that there's a multitude of the heavenly host. That means that this was a large group of God's angel army. That's what he means here when he says a multitude of the heavenly host. That's a word for his gathered troops, the military in a sense of the spiritual realm. It's that group that's explaining this. God's angel army is proclaiming praise to God in the highest and peace. Notice this, an army, military power, fighting unit, declaring peace. This is a beautiful juxtaposition. It's on purpose. This angelic army gives praise to God for his almighty work of bringing salvation to his people. And you've got to see that this is about spiritual warfare. That's what's going on here. It's not just a scene where we have a wonderful singing of the first silent night. That's a beautiful thing, and I love to sing silent night. I'm just wanting us to see what's going on here. He is proclaiming salvation has come. What will deal the death blow to Satan and all the demons? The one has come to actually rescue his people. It's phenomenal. This is the magnificent testimony to the power and glory of the newborn king, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
The angel's proclamation is made to bring God praise for his work of salvation in the birth of the Savior. And he's clarifying what's going on here. It is the blessing of Abraham. It is the fulfillment of the promise to David of one who would rule forever. It will make our hearts happy. It will make us glad and joyous. Because because of this baby, we can be joyous for eternity, not just now. This is a glorious salvation. Friend, if you're here today or watching and you don't know this glorious God, I'd invite you to, to, to look to Christ alone for salvation. You are accountable to a holy, perfect, and righteous God who made you in his image. And you and I have created a situation between us of our own sin that separates us from God. We were born into it because we were born into Adam, and we actively rebel, and we throw it back in God's face in rebellion. We know that we cannot be cleared. We know that we are guilty. And there is only one way for us to have reconciliation between us and God, and that is the salvation that is provided in Jesus Christ alone. It's the reason we celebrate Christmas. He has given us the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the Savior. Therefore, if I can call you to this today, if you do not know this, Lord, repent. There is salvation for you. It is for you today. There is salvation not because we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try to do better, but rather because of the grace of God in this person, Jesus Christ, the Savior, our Lord. Trust him alone and you will be saved. Let's look back here then. The shepherds have now encountered the angel of the Lord. They have heard the message of the Savior. They have been told where to find him as a sign. And they've experienced this thundering chant of the angels praising God and announcing peace. And now we kind of wait to see what they'll do with all this. I mean, what an amazing experience. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. I mean, here they are. I would be dumbfounded by this point. And we're wondering what they will do now that they've seen the angel army and they hear that the Savior's been born. I mean, these things, just in case you don't know, they don't happen to the everyday shepherd. And this is what's happening to them. And now they're going to figure out what are we going to do about this. And they turn to one another and say, we got to go see this thing. we got to go see the Savior. He said he's there. He said he is a baby. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes in Bethlehem. And we know that he's supposed to be in a manger. Let's go find this Savior. They believed. They knew that it was real. They said, this is the truth. Let's go do something about it. Man, I mean... What a, what a good little example for us to hear the truth, to believe it, and to act on that truth. Not to think, well, I'm not sure if this is true or not. When we, when we, when we read God's Word, we are not reading someone's opinion. We're not reading some history. We certainly, it's historical, and certainly it has opinions. They happen to be the right ones. But this word to us is the truth. In a sense, it is what the angels brought to them. It is the truth that we can have our own lives changed by the glory of Jesus Christ, by his grace alone, and that we ought to respond to it. And so these these shepherds, with great urgency, or the text says, with haste, they go to Bethlehem. They look throughout all the stalls. They're probably going on, I don't know how big Bethlehem is at this time, but they know how to refine their search, right? 
They're not like, okay, we need to know all the Mary and Josephs in Bethlehem tonight. That's not where they start. Like, okay, we need to go all the, they know exactly where to go. They're like, where are all the places that have a manger? Where do we have some feeding troughs? And we need to go to them and ask, hey, is anyone here that's been born lately? Like tonight? Do you have any human births happening this night? Because we need to meet those people. And as they look, they find him. They find him there exactly like the angels said. And I don't know how this went, but it must have been surreal. I mean, think about it. Just a few hours ago, or maybe within the last hour, they have seen angels. They have heard the thundering chant of this glory to God and told them to go do this. And they obey, and they go, and they see this, and they come into this stall, into this, maybe it's a cave, maybe it's a farm, uh, some sort of a small shelter, and they see there a mother and a father, I don't know if there's anybody else, but the baby is in the manger. It's exactly how the angel said it would be. They have found him. And this person, on any other occasion, they would think, this is just a baby who got born in a manger. But now they realize, because of what has been told to them, the truth has been told to them, that this thing is true, that this baby that's in this manger is the Savior. It's Christ the Lord. It's true. He really has come. The shepherd's story now is validated by seeing this sign. They have now met the Savior, and now they are sure that the gospel was preached to them and that it was true. And what do they do about it? Listen to their reaction, verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at the shepherds, at what the shepherds had told them. I mean, can you imagine for a minute being the people that were around this, again, small farm or around the stall, maybe the neighboring people that kind of knew that Mary and Joseph were going to have this baby, and that's a wonderful event in and of itself. And they felt, felt bad, there's no room in the inn, but they're kind of like helping them out maybe. And all of a sudden, after this baby is born and put inside this, and, and, and the family's taking care of it, she's probably changing diapers and helping this baby and feeding and all the things that go along with, with childbirth, shepherds show up. And they're like, why are these shepherds here? Do you guys know these shepherds? No. They're from this area. You know, we, we actually came into town. We don't know any shepherds here. Well, these shepherds say that they want to see you and they've got to see this baby. I mean, that should be the red flag, right? Like right away, like what? what the, and uh, these shepherds come in to see that this is true. They respond and then the shepherds turn to all that are around them and tell them this craziness. You see this baby? This baby is the Savior. This baby is Christ the Lord. Let me tell you why I can say that. The angel told us, the angel of the Lord told us this would be true, and he has come to save us from our sins. I mean, the neighbors probably thought this guy, these guys were probably pretty strange. They would probably were wondering about them, but they're also marveling at the fact that this might be true. I mean, the story is absolutely fantastic. You know, uh, they make known to all that would listen that this was the king, this was the savior. And again, I don't know if they go out and knock on doors. I don't know if they go to the public meeting area and have open mic night and say, listen, everybody, this is, we've got to tell you this truth. The person that was born to Mary and Joseph is the Savior. The one that's in a cattle's trough right now, he's the one. All I know is that they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And I'd ask as kind of a historian, how do we know that Luke isn't like just putting it up here and like, yeah, they told a few people. Well, the fact that we're reading it right now tells us something. It tells us, because Luke wasn't here. Luke wasn't like sitting next to, we think about that omnipresence of, a, of an author, right? Luke is not sitting on the hillside and he's watching these guys do this. 
Luke is a real person who's a historian who writes these things down. If you look at the beginning of, of Luke and the beginning of Acts, you'll see that he is writing these things down to teach us. And as he does so, he has heard this story either from the shepherds themselves or he's heard it from others who have heard it from the shepherds because the shepherds have gone out and told this story to other people. I mean, I'll admit, I'm taking a little bit of liberty here right now, but I think it's reasonable to believe that these shepherds played an important role in proclaiming the gospel throughout Judea. Probably they weren't believed at first, but what they were saying was true. Again, people were wondering, wow, that's amazing. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's amazing if that were true. And they probably went on with their lives. Probably many people, though, later on in their life, remember the story of the shepherds. When they hear about Jesus Christ and his teaching, Jesus of Nazareth, who eventually went and was killed, who has claimed that he resurrected from the dead. And now, years later, people are saying, I heard a shepherd tell me that one was coming who was the Savior years ago. And you start to realize these things come together. Probably this testimony became more and more important as people asked more and more questions about Jesus of Nazareth. I also love what the shepherds tell. I mean, if I had had this experience, I think I'd probably talk about the amazing angels that I saw and the shining that I didn't know how to explain. But that's not what they do. That's not what they do at all. The message is more important than the messengers. Just listen to that again. The message is way, way more important than the messengers. Remember, guys, angels can't save us. Angels can't, can't die on the cross for our sins. Jesus Christ, the message is what's important to them. Look what he says here. Again, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They told people not about the angels, but about what the angels told them about this child. There's a wonderful little side note here, though. As people respond to this, Again, it would be crazy to hear someone say this. And they wonder about it. They marvel. But look at verse 19. In contrast to the response of all that wondered at what the shepherds said, we read, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary had, if you remember, she actually already had an angelic experience. She was trying to piece together what it meant for her to be the mother of the Savior. She probably did wonder about these shepherds, this ragtag group of guys bundling in and saying, hey, that's the Savior. I mean, that would be weird in so many ways and really marvelous. And if this is true, she has to think about the other things that she's been told, and she is trying to figure out for herself who her son really is. This is one of the reasons I, I do love that song, Mary, Did You Know? Think, can you think about Mary trying to figure out the baby that she nurses and loves and feeds and changes and helps is her God, is her Savior. As she looks, she treasures these things in her heart and says, and ponders them because she doesn't know what to do with Jesus yet. Right now, she's the steward of helping him come into adulthood and be a man. And yet, he is her Savior. And what we learn from Mary is actually quite a good response for us too. If you think about it, the only, uh, if, if you walk away only wondering about the Savior, you have given up an incredible opportunity to know the Savior. Mary understood that these things were true, but she didn't know how to make sense of all of them yet. And so she pondered, and so she took it deeply inside and thought over and over again about who this was and how he would have an effect on her. Lastly, the shepherd's ultimate end 
is the same as God's ultimate end. They exist to glorify and praise God forever. Notice here in verse 20. And the shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The angel's proclamation to the shepherds was not for the sole purpose of them retelling the story and just kind of perpetually get the story going about this thing that's going on on the Judean hillside with the angels. That's not the point. The point is actually for them to be changed. It's always the point of the gospel. It's not meant to just be told as though, like, if we just keep this, this story going, that's a good thing. It's actually to change hearts and lives and get to the heart of the problem, which is our sin and our loyalty, that we love ourselves so much that we think we are the king. He proves everything else is true, that God in himself sent Jesus, our Savior, and that only through him could we have true salvation. They were changed men, as you see here, that walk away. They walk away glorifying and praising God. Again, this is some speculation, but I can't help but think that these men were probably some of the early converts when Jesus starts his teaching ministry. I'm, again, I recognize it doesn't say that in our text, but when they start realizing this is the son of Mary and Joseph, and what he's saying sounds like he's saying he's the Messiah, they're probably some of the early ones saying, that's probably true. We should believe him and follow him. They're probably, in a sense then, very much evangelists in the sense that they're willing to tell others about this truth. They go away truly glorifying and praising God. They were convinced that this message delivered by angels and verified by their own eyes was true, that the gospel had come in God himself, in this baby, the Word made flesh, Jesus our Savior. As we think about this whole thing then, Luke's telling of the shepherd's story tells us much about the nature of God's kingdom. I just want to make a quick side note on this here. This is worth a whole, a whole message. He comes to the despised, to the lowly, to lift them up. And, and I'll say this, that doesn't mean that the shepherds got a lot of money, that they became less poor on earth, or somehow they got a bunch of renown and people started respecting them. No, this gospel message changed them and brought the lowly into the upper exalted heights in the sense that they knew God. This is telling us about the nature of God's kingdom. It is not that if you believe God, all your problems will go away, you'll be healthy, you'll get a lot of money, and people will think you're great. No, the kingdom of God is coming to those of us who are poor, an understanding that exalted state is actually a knowing God and God alone. God speaks the gospel to these shepherds through angels, and what do they do but believe, obey, proclaim, and glorify God? Their response, this story helps us actually understand how we ought to also respond to the gospel and how we would pray that others would respond to the telling of the gospel. At the heart of all this is not the message for you and me to do more. I'm not, I'm not having us come in here, we, we watch this as a family the other night, um, Christmas Carol, that we want to leave and like give more to the poor and have a holly jolly way about us and love other people and really express the Christmasness of this season joy. No, we actually want to come back and recognize that our only hope and joy is in Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is the heart of Christmas. This is the heart of what we do day in, day out as we trust and know Jesus Christ. We can have our sins forgiven. We can be reconciled to God through Jesus. He has made a way and He is our Savior. So brother and sister, friend, or all those that might watch us some other time, I would call us to this, not just to wonder, but like Mary, to ponder these things. 
And since we know more than just this, since our, our, our scriptures don't end at Luke 2, we know the rest of the story. And so as we respond to Jesus, it's a response of love, repentance, and joy in following and being made whole now because of Christ. So, with those words, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. I want you to know the truth of Christmas. Yes, I hope you have a wonderful time eating and with family and lights and movies and all the different things that come along with this and rest and relaxation. But would you turn your heart and mind to the most important thing that's ever happened in human history, which is the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I just want you to know that we love you. We are praying for you. We're praying that God will continue his saving work both in our midst and across the world together. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you this morning. And we, we, we echo Zechariah's words that were read to us earlier today. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel because you visited and redeemed your people. You've raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of your servant David. Lord, you told us that this would happen. Your holy prophets from of old told us that we'd be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. That you really would show us mercy that you promised to our fathers and that we, you would remember your holy covenant. Lord, it would be true that you'd make it come true, the oath that you swore to our father Abraham. Lord God, you've delivered us from the hand of our enemies that, you, that we might serve you without fear in holiness and righteousness before you all of our days. And so we praise you for your mighty work at Christmas. You have given us the Savior. We ask that you would make us like the shepherds, overjoyed and compelled to make known the good news of our Savior King. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.